I believe the way things are is not the way things have to be. We'll only really make things better when we all come together, when we all work together, when we all join together, when we work out that we're all in this together. I'm telling you, you can't play politics with people's jobs and with people's services. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tanks podcast, In Conversation. As always, I'm your host, Will Barber-Taylor, and in this episode of the podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Will Travers OBE, President of the Born Free Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Will. Very nice to to be on the show, Will. Um, It's not going to get confusing at all with two Wills on the show. (laughs) Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Well, it's great to have you on. Um, and th- the first question that I'd like to ask you is for listeners who haven't heard of Born Free, um, could you explain what it is and, and what it is you do? Sure. Um, so, um, quite fortuitously, my parents, Virginia McKenna and Bill Travers, were um, chosen to star in the film Born Free way, way back in the 1960s. 1964, in fact, they went to Kenya to play the roles of George and Joy Adamson in the film Born Free, based on the book by Joy. And the story very simply is uh, um, two wildlife conservationists in a remote part of Kenya um, release and return a orphaned lioness, Elsa, to the wild successfully against all the odds and against all the advice as well. Anyway, the, the, the book was a huge success and the film was a huge success as well. And it took nearly a year to make. So my mother and father had to get to know and work with lions, not tame lions, not lions from the circus, although they did try and start off, a film company tried to start off with lions from the circus, but they proved to be uh, animals that really just wanted one thing, which was to have their revenge on human beings for their um, life beforehand. (laughs) And so um, they worked with a group of other lions, and with George Adamson, who was the technical advisor on the film. And when filming ended, most of the lions, sadly, went to um, zoos and safari parks. But three, Girl Boy and Ugas, were successfully uh, returned to the wild by George, emulating the story of Elsa herself. And my mum and dad got fascinated by all of this. My dad made a documentary about it. Mm. He started to make more and more documentaries um, and and feature films involving wildlife, one of which was uh, an elephant called Slowly. About um, it's a fictitious story about uh, two people house sitting uh, um, property in Kenya where there are some unusual residents, which turn out to be three elephants. One of those elephants had been caught as a gift for the London Zoo at the time. We're talking in the late 1960s. Mm. And uh, they waylaid her uh, so that she could be in the film. And when filming was finished, they asked if they could have her and release her to the wild with uh, famous Daphne and David Sheldrick. The authorities at the time said that, that they could, but that they would have to go and get another baby elephant from the wild to honour their gift to London Zoo. So rather than mess with the system, Holy Poly, that's the name of the elephant, which means slowly in Swahili, uh, went to London Zoo. And 10 years later, my folks who hadn't seen her since then heard that she was in trouble, that she'd become difficult to manage and that they um, 
that the, the authorities were considering her future and not in a good way. So they went up to see her. Uh, my dad, there's a famous photograph of my dad and mum stretching their hands out across the moat at the at the London Zoo Elephant House, and Poli Poli comes down from the back of the enclosure and stretches her trunk out uh, to touch their outstretched fingers. It's an incredible photograph. Um, and so we launched a, a campaign at the time to return her to Africa, and although we found somewhere that would be willing to take her, the zoo was not inclined. They said they would move her to Whipsnade. The move failed. She was euthanized in the elephant house, having damaged a foot. And that was the start of our real concern at the time for the plight of animals in zoos and who was looking into it and was there any kind of independent analysis. And we, so we set up a tiny organization with six quid, six pounds, called ZooCheck. And then a few years later, ZooCheck morphed into the Born Free Foundation, the, the charity that we have today. And Born Free sits on four pillars, Will. It sits on a conservation pillar, an education pillar, an animal rescue and care pillar, and a policy pillar. And um, so we, we span a wide range of activities, uh, some of which I suspect we're going to touch on today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, it, it is such a, a fascinating story, and the research that you do is, is so um, uh, pr profoundly interesting, and, and the, the reports that you publish one of which we're going to be discussing in a moment, are very well researched and, and really, um, I think, bring the issue alive uh, for a lot of people. Um, one of the reports um, that was um, recently released was on um, polar bears uh, in captivity, polar bears specifically in zoos in um, the US, Europe and Asia. Um, could you explain what prompted the commissioning and writing of this particular report? Yes, I guess it was two things. Firstly, we've been doing a, quite a lot of research into public attitudes, and it seems that the public are increasingly disinclined to support the keeping of large, wide-ranging, mainly mammals, in uh, captivity. Mm. Um, we're talking about you know, 80, 85, 89% of those polled independently by an independent organization, I should, should add that, are saying that we shouldn't be doing this, um, and polar bears fit into that. Also, polar bears was the first species that we uh, studied and produced a report on. Paul Horsman produced a report over 35 years ago uh, looking at polar bears in British zoos, and the publicity that surrounded that at the time focused on the fact that there was a, a huge amount of what we call stereotypic behavior, abnormal behaviors that are the result of animals trying to cope with unnatural environments. Mm. And the zoo is a very, very unnatural environment compared certainly to uh, what polar bears might expect to experience in the wild. Um, so we thought it's about time to go back and revisit, in essence, what we were looking into 37 years ago and what's changed now. And, and sadly, um, little has changed. And that's the, the damning indictment of what we have been doing by keeping hundreds of polar bears in captivity, 151 in Europe alone. Um, it, that's the indictment of what we've been doing to polar bears in captivity. Your report calls for a legislative ban on holding polar bears in captivity and to urge zoos to phase out polar bears being kept in captivity for good. 
How long do you think it will take for these aims to become a reality? And how far are you from reaching a united consensus on this issue? Well, interestingly, in the UK, I would have said we were nearer to that point many years ago, because Mm -hmm. when we did the first original report 37 years ago, I think I'm right, there were either 18 or 20 polar bears in uh, British zoos, British and Irish zoos. And then that number collapsed. Neither bears died or bears were sent away to other facilities. And we got down to, off the top of my head, like two or three. And I thought, well, this is, you know, this is the end uh, of the keeping of this uh, species in captivity in the UK. But since then, we've had more bears come in. We now have 12. And so we've sort of gone backwards on this issue. You're right that it's a two-pronged approach. It's it's persuading zoos that this is not the, the right thing to do uh, by the species. And it's also looking at the role that government can play in, if not bringing about um, a ban, which governments are, are reluctant sometimes to introduce full-on prohibitions. Um, not always, as we may come to, but sometimes they do. So, for example... With dolphins in captivity, there are no dolphins in dolphin area in the United Kingdom. Um, But in the 70s, there were lots. And then it began to dwindle. And then the government was persuaded to carry out a review which um, put in place the minimums that would be required in terms of both the sort of surface size and also the depth of pools if you wanted to keep dolphins. And no dolphin area were willing to make the investment. So, in fact, in, the, in terms of the dolphin story, Born Free was one of the key organizations that took three of the last dolphins from captivity in the United Kingdom and released them into the wild in the Turks and Caicos Islands in the waters around the TNC uh, in the early 1990s. The same approach could be applied. I'm not saying it would be, but mm-hmm. it could be applied to polar bears if the government turned around and said, if you're going to book up polar bears in captivity, you have to have, let's make it up, a 10-hectare enclosure. It has to contain a, a range of different topographies um, that replicate aspects of the wild environment that polar bears find themselves in over the seasons. Um, and you can't have a stocking density of more than, make it up, three animals per enclosure. They could say that. That wouldn't that wouldn't, in essence, be a ban, but it would set criteria based on the priorities for the animals, and those criteria are unlikely to be met by zoos. So so that two-prong approach is very important. As to how long it will take, well, you know, polar bears um, live on average 17 years uh, for males in zoos and 21 years for females. I don't actually have the statistics in front of me mm-hmm. as to the ages of all the bears, but you can see that this is going to take some time to bring about the long-term radical change that we that we see. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one of those um, concerns, obviously, you mentioned in, in terms of space could be um, one way to um, create uh, some sort of restrictions on, on um, polar bears being kept in zoos. But one of the great concerns in terms of welfare is the difference in climate between the polar bear's natural habitat and where they are held, particularly during the summer months. I think one of the um, countries that you highlight that seem to be the worst for the polar bears is is Italy. Um, How important do you think it is to highlight 
how unnatural the environment that these polar bears are kept in is. And do you think it can be shown as an example of how encompassing the climate crisis is, that polar bears are being removed from their natural habitat and placed into zoos, which are warming up due to the same climate emergency that is destroying much of the polar bear's natural habitat? Yeah, it's a very good point that you make. And, and you know, there is no easy answer here because the climate crisis that the entire planet faces and that is having an impact on pretty much every single species, every single habitat and ecosystem um, at an increasing pace is not something that can be resolved overnight. I mean, we, we heard only, what was it, uh, a few days ago from the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations basically telling us that we have 12 years to get a grip and if we don't, any efforts to try and reverse the, the, the climate crisis trend will be almost impossible. I think he still wants people to believe that there is hope. Mm. But he said 12 years, so to the middle of the next decade, that uh, 2035 is going to be a critical time frame. You're right, polar bears uh, in captivity. And I think this is a point that the public resonates very strongly with. I mean... The, the clue is in the name. It's a polar bear, um, and it lives in the Arctic. And even with climate change, average temperatures in the Arctic are around 10 degrees in summer, and then, of course, massively lower in the uh, cooler months. And to imagine that polar bears uh, can satisfactorily uh, live their lives in Italy. Oh, there was one case of polar bears in Alexandria in mm. Egypt, um, living in an outside enclosure, so not in a temperature-controlled environment. You know, these, these I can only imagine, and I think we can all only imagine mm. how inappropriate that is and how much those bears are out of their comfort zone. So, uh, and then on top of that, um, the... Polar bears being large and dangerous, potentially dangerous animals, you need um, what is called in many um, architectural circles, brutalist architecture. Mm. So huge, massive architectural constructions, concrete, gunite, uh, steel, and, and the rest of it. And those constructions themselves are uh, intensive in terms of their use of materials that contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. You know, so we've got this strange juxtaposition that here we have a species that is, you know, on a knife edge when it comes to uh, climate change, uh, being put in enclosures which in themselves contribute to climate change. Mm. And in in terms of um, climate change and the um, mortality rates for polar bears, something that you also mentioned in the report, you highlight that the uh, mortality rate for polar bears in zoos is akin to um, polar bears, the polar bear mortality rate for those suffering from the worst effects of climate change. Given this and the obvious issues with the wild polar bear population, how best can the global polar bear population be sustained? Yeah, so the the um, the fact that, that um, the mortality rate in captivity is pretty much equivalent to mortality rates in an increasingly uh, fragile wild sort of indicates how how grim the situation is for polar bears in all circumstances. And in captivity, where there are no uh, threats from um, lack of food, you know, 
none of the cha survival challenges that polar bears face in the wild should be present in zoos because it's a completely controlled um, human-centered environment with veterinary care on hand and food on hand and water on hand and all those kind of things, you'd have thought that the survival rate would be significantly higher, but it's not. Mm. So that, again, another indictment of the, the situation facing polar bears in zoos. As to the wider the wider issue of climate change, you know, it's, we have to almost step away from the specifics of mm. of polar bears and we have to address ourselves to the wider threat to our planet, including ourselves, um, when it comes to continued human activities which are threatening um, and and continuing to uh, contribute to the climate change crisis. It, we have the, the bizarre situation where, as I say, just a few days ago, the UN was talking about 12-year timelines, and we have... Uh, the bizarre situation where the UK government, literally in the last 48 hours, is talking about rather proudly their ability to exploit uh, fossil fuels, to continue to exploit fossil fuels. Um, while we still have that dialogue going on, while we still talk about a short-termist agenda, which is to, you know, exploit fossil fuels, and one day they will be overtaken, quotes, by... Uh, renewables, uh, but we're not investing in renewables uh, at the level necessary to accelerate the pace of change. You know, we are looking at a very dire projection for the future, and a projection which will affect us all. You know, we're, we're talking today about polar bears, but it will affect us all. It will affect those uh, island nation states. It will affect uh, seaboard cities. It will affect... Um, increased desertification in some respects. We will have more temperature extremes. We experienced some of it in the UK last summer with that prolonged, prolonged period of very high sort of southern Mediterranean temperatures, which went on for weeks and weeks, if not months, for which we are entirely unsuited and have very little ability to adapt. Um, so we have to get to grips with the fundamentals. Mm. And the only way I can see that we can do that on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of the planet is to uh, seriously change uh, the way that we do things, invest significantly in renewables and alternatives to the technologies that pump greenhouse gases into our atmosphere. Um, and we also need to invest in nature. Um, nature in itself is one of our best allies because of the work that it does unseen and unrewarded in terms of uh, sequestering carbon, in storing carbon, uh, in trying to uh, deal with the outputs that human beings are creating. So investing in nature is vitally important. And the, the if, if you ask me the question, what, what does investment in nature look like? people who understand this far better than I have estimated that we need to spend around 800 billion US dollars a year on our investment in nature climate mitigation strategy. Now, 800 billion dollars a year sounds like a huge amount of money. But in truth, it is half the US defense budget, hmm. half the annual US defense budget. Uh, if you look at um, high speed two, 
I'm not actually going to try and remember the exact details because the plans for High Speed 2 change on a daily basis depending on uh, your point of view. But High Speed 2 is going to cost around 100 million, 100 billion pounds, so about 125 billion dollars so about 15 percent of what we need to invest globally in nature um to shave 20 minutes off the journey time to birmingham from london and i guess what it boils down to is this we have to prioritize we have to decide what is really important and what is simply desirable and what is really important is that we uh, and our natural world survive. And to, to address that issue, we need to put in the resources. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'd just like to, to turn away um, for the, from the report for a moment um, to ask about the fur trade, which is obviously something that uh, a lot of people are concerned about. It's something that is often discussed. How best do you think um, organisations like yourselves and, and, and others can pressure the government into ending the fur trade to the UK and more widely throughout the rest of the world? Yeah, um, so, I mean, the good news, uh, and there is good news, is that we banned fur farming in this country, in Britain rather, in 2003. So we, we've had 20 years without fur farms. Um, but what we did is we effectively outsourced it to other countries. So we import 75 million pounds worth of fur into this country every year. Um, so we haven't ended it. We've just shifted the problem somewhere else. Um, I think the British people are consistently opposed to uh, fur and all the negative impacts that fur has. They negative impact on the individual animals concerned, the pollutants that are involved in intensive raising of animals for fur, um, the possibility that fur farms become hotspots for uh, pathogens and pandemics. There's all sorts of really good reasons why we should move away rapidly from fur. Um, and the power for this not only sort of lies in legislation, but it lies in the hands of the consumer. Um, if if we don't want it to continue, then we have to uh, exercise our consumer choice. And I would recommend that people who want to do that should go to what's called the Fur Free Retailer uh, website. It's www.furfreeretailer.com. And there, there is a huge list of companies like Dolce & Gabbana and L and Prada and Boss and more who have all moved away from fur. So it's your chance to identify the brands you love and do it with a clear conscience as far as fur is concerned. Mm -hmm. um, and, and another issue that has been um, discussed quite a lot recently has been rewilding, both rewilding in terms of um, plants and um, uh, other uh, forms of um, trees and that kind of thing, but also of animals, beavers in, in some instances, uh, bisons, wolves, that kind of thing. And in terms of animals, that has, of course, caused a great deal of friction between um, some advocates of rewilding and some landowners, in particular um, farmers with concerns about their livestock. Do you think that rewilding can 
coexist with farming within the UK? And how best do you think we can put across the point that rewilding is actually a positive thing and shouldn't be seen as a as a threat as, as some people view it? Well, you know what, over the last uh, three years, throughout the pandemic, one of the consistent features has been a growing appreciation of nature by us all. It has been one of the things that has helped us remain relatively sane. It has been that space that we can go into and recharge our batteries and recalibrate our values when we're confronted with an ongoing pandemic crisis. A crisis that has, as far as I'm aware, come about because of our abuse of nature and our unrealistic close proximity to wild spaces and wild creatures, um, in, in this case, perhaps, from um, captive situations in China. Mm -hmm. And I'm not actually pointing the finger at China. I could have said pretty much any country mm -hmm. um, in some respects. Um, in terms of that coexistence that you talk about, I think that it can be done. In fact, I think it is being done. There are some amazing places uh, in the United Kingdom that have embraced rewilding and sustainable agriculture. Nepa State in Sussex is just one example. Uh, the Aegis uh, Field Studies Centre in Scotland is another. And um, it, so by we can show that it can be done. We can show that we can still address our uh, targets in terms of domestic food production and uh, to be more self-sustaining in terms of uh, food products that we need. Um, but we can also enhance our relationship with wildlife. And we are, as my friend Chris Packham says, um, at every opportunity, so I will only copy him, uh, that we are the most nature, one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. And that's not something to be proud of. We should We should be ashamed that we've allowed um, various practices, not just farming practices, but other practices to run roughshod over our natural world. I, I live, you know, I'm a hugely lucky. I live uh, in the Surrey Hills. I live in what's a designated area of outstanding natural beauty. Um, people come from London and from elsewhere to the Surrey Hills to breathe in and reconnect. And yet, my community fought for eight years to prevent oil exploration in the Surrey Hills, about a mile from where I live. They were going to put up a huge exploratory rig. They were going to drive 800 to 1,000 heavy goods vehicle up a sunken Roman road to service the rig. And if they had found oil on that exploratory rig, I can only imagine how much more devastation would have been caused when they went full on for production. That was actually uh, the license for exploration was eventually pulled by the government, but not until we had done, I don't know, three public inquiries and spent precious resources from a tiny community trying to protect not just our patch, but London's lungs mm. out here in the in the Surrey Hills. So we have again. It goes back to this point I made earlier. We have to make. Uh, and choose our priorities. If our priorities are to have um, a healthy, vibrant, green ecosystem around some of our big urban areas, then we must prioritize that and not allow that kind of quiet, gentle, 
nibbling away at the edges of it, diminishing it, uh, making one exceptional case after another, because at the end of the day, once you add up all the exceptional cases, oh, but it's only this one, and oh, but it's only this other one, we end up with, um, we do not end up with what we originally wanted. We end up with something far less. Absolutely. Well, thank you for um, taking the time to speak to me, Will. Uh, I have one final question for you. What more do you think that governments around the world can do to ensure that wildlife is protected both from direct interference from humanity, so via trophy hunting, that kind of thing, but also from the direct consequence, indirect consequences of humanity's use of fossil fuels and other things that damage the climate? Do you think that it's uh, one particular uh, law that could be uh, agreed with, with various governments around the world, or, or do you think it's a, a series of measures that would need to be agreed to that could best protect wildlife? I think it's it's got to be the latter, Will. Mm. I think that um, we we have, in a sense, we have the tools. We have the uh, conventional migratory species. We have the conventional international trade in endangered species of fauna and flora. We have the conventional biological diversity. We have a new pandemics treaty uh, in the process. You know, we have these grand global agreements um, and we struggle and we do struggle to come to the right conclusions whenever meetings are held. But then the the problem is that even when, as has happened at the recent Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework Agreement, which was agreed only in December, three months ago, mm. um, where is the political will and the resources to implement what has been agreed? So one of the biggest challenges we have is not that that we don't have the laws, we don't have the international agreements. It's do we have the muscle to make it happen? And sadly, that has been lacking on pretty much every front, including including the climate change front as well. I think that the move towards a one health, one welfare world where we consider the whole basket of health, mm. not just human health, but animal health, ecosystem health, planetary health, uh, marine health, terrestrial health, where we consider health in the round and we don't take measures in one direction, uh, if it has negative consequences in another, is a is a, a very important, massively interesting uh, innovation in our thinking just in the last few years. Uh, and at the end of the day, it, I have to say it, I have become less reliant on government and I have become more reliant on people. And the people listening to this podcast have choices. They have disposable income. They have things they want to do. And as I said earlier, there are the things that they might regard as essential. And then they, there are the things they might regard as uh, desirable. Um, I will just give you one example. Um, when the pandemic came along, Born Free took a step back and said, can we afford, not financially, can we afford, in a, in the, the the context of our planetary health, to continue to do business the way that we have? And we reviewed all our travel, uh, particularly our international air flights, to our projects around the world. And we took a decision to cut our international air travel by 75%. Not by 5%, 10, 15, but by 75%. Mm. 
And that meant rethinking the way that we manage our projects. And and we have managed to stick to it. I mean, I, I have in the last, um, since 2020, I have made one business flight and one personal flight. Uh, and I can't see it returning, and I will certainly never return to the days when I used to go, well, I will um, go and see the minister in this country uh, for 10 minutes because that's all the time that he or she can spare for me. If they will, if it's if it's important enough to them, we will get on a Zoom call, or we'll get on a Teams call, and we'll have that conversation, and we'll make it work. So it's time for us to turn our thoughts and values into action. And if enough of us do it, it will have the transformative effect that it needs to have. Absolutely. Well, from one will uh, to another, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to record the podcast with me uh will if people want to find out more about born free i want to read uh the polar bear report that we were discussing at the start of the podcast where should they go to find out more about born free and to read the report uh, they, they i'd be welcome then to come to our website which is um www.bornfree.org.uk we also have uh, social media channels on twitter on instagram on facebook on LinkedIn and our latest foray into uh, social media, which is TikTok. So there's multiple ways that you can find out what we do. And, and I, you know, I'll say it, if you like what you see and you want to be part of the family, and this is a very family-driven thing. I don't mean just blood. I mean, we think of ourselves as a family of like-minded individuals who have shared common values. If you share those values, then you know, supporters come and come and be part of the family. Fantastic. Well, I hope that people listening will certainly do that. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. My pleasure.